Welcome to the New Books Network. It's the Yukon Popcast. I'm Professor Stephen Dyson. And I'm Professor Jeff Dudas. Jeff, this is this is unbelievable. It's unprecedented. It's unimaginable. Usually we record these these broadcasts mm-hmm. from the dim and dingy environs of my office. And instead today we are in the magnificent space here at the Yukon uh, Humanities Institute. That's right. And um, we are here recording our very first live show. This is our first one, isn't it? The yeah. first, first ever live show. And we have an exceptional guest who is about to join us, whom I will now introduce. So Danielle J. Lindemann is a professor of sociology at Lehigh University and the author of True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. For this book, Professor Lindemann analyzed thousands of hours of reality TV from the real world to the real housewives and concluded that the key question about the genre is not whether it is real or fake, but instead how it generates, reflects, and shapes our shared ideas and perceptions of what is true and proper. She writes, quote, reality TV is both a guilty goodie and a nutritional bite, nestling in the crook between normalcy and deviance, just like its participants and just like us. And while the freaky undercurrent of reality programming remains strong, reality stars are more than just sideshow. Some of them are also our main attractions. They're flashpoints for our desires, behaviors, and peculiarities. And for a while, one was running our country. And so welcome to the Yukon podcast, Danielle Lindemann. Okay, so what we usually do at the start of these um, things is speak a little bit about um, kind of the history of our guest and our history with the the text or genre uh, at issue, which in this case is reality TV. And Professor Lindemann, you write in your book, if I've got this right, that your first experience of watching reality TV was um, a season of the real world set in London. Um, do I have that right? And can you tell us about that and why why that captured your attention? Yeah, so it was the real world London, which is kind of universally condemned as one of the most boring seasons of the real world. But I absolutely ate it up as a teenager growing up on Long Island in the mid-1990s. I had just never, somehow I missed the earlier seasons of The Real World. Maybe I was too young. But I had just never seen anything like this before. These people were so cool. And they were talking about things like gender and race and social class in a way that I really hadn't heard people on TV or people in my own life talk about these issues. And I think I say that I I kind of knew I was a sociologist even before I knew what sociology was because reality TV was kind of my gateway to sociology. Cool. And well, Jeff, do you want to talk about y'all? Sure. You know, I, Danielle, had the same experience, not with the London season, but with the first New York season of The Real World. I was, I want to say that I was going off to college that summer. So maybe there was something I was also, you know, much like um, one of the characters in that first season, I was also a corn-fed rube uh, coming from Southeast Ohio, uh, actually, in fairness, going to a university also in Southeast Ohio, but it felt like a world away. And so maybe there was something about that experience of kind of leaving home and engaging in the world in a different way that I found, you know, uh, interesting and meaningful. Stephen, reality TV. Yeah, so I, so my experience, I think I, I have two that are, that are important. One, one was the first season of Big Brother UK. Oh, 
and Big Brother UK was, I actually wonder if this, I mean, maybe Professor Lindemann can enlighten us how, how much this was ground zero for the current crop of reality TV. But in Britain, it, it had come from the Netherlands. There was a production company called Endemol, which had run uh, a Big Brother thing in the Netherlands mm. and it had been a runaway hit and it had come to the UK. And it was very interestingly sort of marketed, not really as entertainment, but as sort of a, an experiment. It was, it, you know, it was very definitely marketed to us as um, we will observe people in their natural habitat and we will learn things about everyday life, um, which is not a marketing you, I don't know that you get that much anymore on reality yeah. TV. And then my second experience was very shortly after that when I moved to the US and it was um, fall 2000. So this was, if, I, if, if I'm not misremembering, mm. like the first season of Survivor. And that was, you know, all the rage and the, the Richard Hatch season, right? The one where, as I, again, I have a dim memory of this and the professor can put me right. Like everyone else was playing like a nice cooperative game and Richard Hatch was like, screw this, I, I, I want to win. Uh, and he, right. he, sort of, he sort of won. Um, although you say in the, in the book that he kind of came back from the dead, I mean, not literally, that would be remarkable, but, but <laughs> sort of figuratively, he appeared on, on, an, on a later season of Survivor and tried the same stuff, but everyone else had caught up with his tactics and it didn't work. They were too savvy. Yeah, he was kicked off pretty early. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I also should say, before we get in too much to, to your analysis, I did not actually consider myself much of a reality TV fan until I read your book and started actually thinking about the programs that I watch. And it turns out that at least half of what I consume is probably reality TV in one way or another, some form of unscripted show. And so there is a kind of ubiquity, it seems to me, about this form of entertainment that sneaks up on you in ways that you don't always anticipate. So um, I'm really excited to get into it. Yeah, me too. So, uh, Professor, you um, use your book or you talk a lot in the book uh, about how various reality TV shows kind of illustrate or elaborate or maybe sometimes challenge um, kind of core sociological concepts. I wonder if you could just take us through, you know, maybe your favorite example of that or one or two of the, the most compelling examples of, of that dynamic. Oh, there's so many examples. Yeah, I think so. One example is um, sort of the way that we perform gender. So kind of my overall argument in the book is that reality TV, it seems like it's this kind of deviant space because people are behaving in these wacky ways and they're like eating a bug on TV and they're dating in underground bunkers and not even seeing each other. But at the same time, they're kind of exaggerated versions of ourselves. So we're behaving in our own lives in kind of more muted ways from the ways they're behaving. I think you'd see that in terms of performance of gender. So on shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, where you see these drag queens really like doing these exaggerated performances of femininity, or even on a show like The Bachelor, where also arguably the women are doing these exaggerated forms of femininity. And it's tempting to look at that and say, like, that's not like me at all. You know, they're wearing bedazzled evening gowns at 10 a.m. Nobody ever eats, right? They're all competing for one man. I would never do that. But at the same time, we are all doing performances of gender in more muted ways, what sociologists West and Zimmerman call doing gender. We're all performing gender for an audience of our peers. Most of us, some of us opt out in certain ways, but most of us are performing gender 
for an audience of our peers who are keyed in to the same ideas about what masculinity means and what femininity means. So by tracing the exaggerated contours of these caricatures that we see, we can come to a better understanding of our own kind of routine daily performances. Yeah. And this is sort of your overall perspective here, right? So if one were to ask, what is it about reality TV that makes it so popular, that makes it so ubiquitous? What do you think, how would you answer them? There's so many different, I mean, there's so many different types of shows and people Mm -hmm. tune into them for varied reasons. I mean, there's a lot of research looking at why people tune into reality TV because it is ubiquitous. As you said, Mm -hmm. more of us, vastly more of us are watching than not. Even if we, like you, don't necessarily think on the surface that we are watching reality TV, if we dig in a little, we begin to realize just how much we're watching. So there are a few things that sort of draw people into reality TV you know, it is zany, right? You've got these zany characters, these zany plots, but, and so that kind of draws us in. There's that train wreck factor, right? Mm-hmm. Where we can watch it to kind of symbolically distance ourselves from the people on the shows. At least, you know, my life might be messed up, but at least I'm not like those people eating bugs on TV over there. That kind of smug superiority that we can feel toward the people on the show. But paradoxically, at the same time, we're drawn to these characters because our characters because we're like them in some ways again they're kind of augmented versions of ourselves so even going back to like that first season of the real world right there was a one character that you kind of identified with because mm. you were sort of in that same position that she was and that's often true because reality tv sort of traffics in these broad archetypes and usually even if there's a zany premise and weird people there's someone you can kind of hold on to and say oh i'm i'm that one i'm the smart one or i'm the shy one that one is most like me so it's this interesting kind of dance where we're like watching the freak show because we are reminding ourselves that we're not Mm -hmm. the freaks but at the same time they're they're resonating with us in certain ways Mm -hmm. yeah and it's i mean i'm I want to kind of approach this question of of popularity from a from a slightly different angle, which is um, the question of kind of why study um, reality TV or, or or should we study reality TV? And you, you talk in the book about the uh, and this is a direct quote the crap hierarchy. Right? Mm. It's the, the the kind of spectrum of and I think you mean just reality TV from um, I would never watch that to like I I recognize that's crap, but I would still watch that. And that's usually said by people who are disavowing kind of any interest in reality TV. And I wondered, you know, Jeff and I are both kind of scholars of popular culture, and that's what brought us to our book. And and one thing we often find is that scholars of popular culture will say they're studying popular culture, but they tend to study what's called high pop, right? They tend Mm -hmm. to say, I study popular culture. I like, I watch The Sopranos and The Wire and, you know, Mm -hmm. these these kind of novelistic grand um, inquisitions into the human uh, condition. And in a sense, what they're really doing is just, you know, not taking advantage or, or, or not really understanding what the popular is. I mean, the popular is what everyone watches, and very few people actually comparatively watch The Sopranos or The Wire, as opposed to would watch The Bachelor or another reality TV show. And I suppose I, I, I wonder, I'm asking you, do, do you think it's problematic that more people don't study mm. like low pop, like like reality TV? Should we kind of get out of our own way? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I'm probably preaching to the choir here, right? But I absolutely think that's true. And I think just like on the face of it, I think people react to what I study sometimes 
um, with their sort of own personal bias, right? Whether they loved reality TV or hate reality TV. I always tell this story. One time I was doing like a book signing at this book bookstore and this woman like walks up and she's not part of the signing, but she walks up and she's like, what's this book about? And I was like, it's about reality TV. And she goes, ugh, why? And she walks away, right? And I think that, ugh, why is just sort of this impulse that people have. And maybe that's because people don't like reality TV. But I'm not here to tell you to like reality TV. I can completely mm -hmm. understand not liking reality TV. But that's completely different from saying this is something that's worthy of study. Right? When more people than not are tuning into something, when there's evidence that what we're watching impacts the way that we think and move in the world and our beliefs, when we've had a reality TV president, when he's tweeted with Kim Kardashian in the Oval Office talking about prison reform, it's time we started paying attention, whether we like to watch these shows or not. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, a sort of subterranean but recurring theme. It seems to me in your analysis that yokes together the rise of reality TV with the rise of social media. And um, – you you argue or at least gesture towards the idea that there's something that connects these two practices that has to do with the ability of ordinary people or relatively ordinary people to brand themselves in particular ways. Um, I wonder if you might sort of fill in the details a little bit on what you see as the potential link between these the rise of these two um, different but complementary perhaps practices. Yeah, so there are a few things happening here. So one of the things is that reality TV has kind of always relied on this like multi-platform approach where we're not only watching the show, but we're also kind of engaging with the stars in other ways, even before social media. Um, like even going back to the early season of The Real World, you're watching the show, but then they're selling you the music that they're playing on the mm -hmm. show. So it's sort of all about like these different levels of engagement with the show. And so that fits like right in, right, to the nook of social media. And then there's also these sort of what we call parasocial relationships that we form mm -hmm. with the people on the shows. So, you know, when we're watching like a scripted show, yeah, we might feel like we kind of know the characters, but there's evidence that that's really heightened when you're watching reality TV because you're watching someone who ostensibly, regardless of scripting or whatever, but ostensibly is being themselves. And so you really start to feel that relationship more strongly with that person. And that translates really well to the realm of social media, to sponsorship, to influencing, because then you can follow them on social media that further strengthens the relationship. They can sell you things. So it's much easier to brand yourself as a reality TV star mm -hmm. than as say someone who's known for like performing as a, as a certain role, which also, right, the, the, the people who are most highly followed on these platforms tend to be people who we know as themselves, reality stars, sports stars, less i mean they're obviously they're highly followed people who we know for certain roles but it tends to be people who we know as themselves and we form these relationships with these people as themselves i wonder professor i mean i'm i'm not intelligent enough to to kind of fully elaborate this thought so so <laughs> maybe you can help me out a little bit but that this link between kind of social media and and reality tv seems really interesting to me. I mean, the two eras, the rise of the eras are, are not entirely kind of uh, coterminous, but they're, they're, they're pretty close or, or synchronous. Um, they both seem to feature kind of the, the portrayal of or, or the representation of something as real that's actually 
a, a fake version of reality or, a, or an, a, an extreme version of a personality. Like your social media profile is not how you are in real life. And the way you behave on a reality TV show is, is not how you would behave, I, I imagine, outside of that, you know, that very sort of artificial situation. And I wonder, is, is it too much of a stretch to, to kind of speak in those terms about a, you know, a, a new age of kind of simulation over, over reality that has been driven by these two media? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's an accident, as as you said, that they're emerging roughly, not exactly at the same time, right, roughly the same time, and the people who t- tend to excel at one seemingly also excel at the other. I mean, as a sociologist, though, I would say, like, it's always been true that we've been putting forward presentations of self, right? Like, reality itself is a social construct. So, Social media is just kind of this huge glittering platform on which to do it, right, and post pictures of our perfect kids and our perfect dinners. But it's always been true. Like if I were an undergrad writing a paper, I'd say since the beginning of time, it's been Mm. true that we've been doing (laughs) these performances, right, for other people. We've been kind of crafting these selves for others. So I think it's it's slightly different with social media, right, because it is this bigger platform. But I talk about this in the book, right, that like – And also maybe that's one reason why the people who are good at doing reality TV are really also good at Mm -hmm. social media because it involves similar skill sets when it comes to branding, as you mentioned, and presentation of self. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to, um, sorry, Jeff, I didn't mean to to step in front of you, Um, you but I do have a good question. It very rarely happens, so I want to get it out while it's still still at the top of my head. So Danielle, I study um, science fiction. That's the thing I'm really interested in. Um, And the, the kind of central point of the, study of science fiction is that it's taken to be an inherently sort of revolutionary or progressive genre of popular media because it's constantly representing um something that's like our world but something that's that features fundamental differences and it's kind of telling people things can be different human beings can make a change you know don't take the status quo for granted uh never look backwards always look forward so it has it has that very progressive political valence as as i read your book and and I, and I thought about reality TV, it struck me that reality TV is, is in that respect basically the opposite of science fiction, right? If science fiction is progressive and look to the future and things can change, reality TV is conservative, you know, reactionary, um, n- nothing ever changes. We're just these kind of archetypes that, you know, we look like individuals, but we're, we're really kind of representations of our social situation and, and, and everything's kind of set in stone. I mean, do you, do you buy that analysis? I think it's a little more nuanced than that. I mean, I think, especially when it comes to sort of the dominant reality TV shows, yeah, like they're very conservative at their core in terms of how people are doing gender, right? Like how people talk about class, how people talk about families. There hasn't been a lot of change. But sort of on the periphery, like on the margins of reality TV and the kind of the back channels of basic cable, you see these shows where people are doing different things than what you see on scripted TV. You see like little boys sewing dresses. You see whole shows that have entirely casts of people of color, which you probably wouldn't see like, well, you might see on a primetime show, but not that often. Right. And so like you see queer people, you see, right. Like trans people, you see all kinds of people who aren't necessarily represented 
all the time on kind of primetime scripted media. And so I think it's true that like dominant reality TV, like at its core is pretty conservative. And that's an argument I make in the book. But kind of if you look like around the margins, there's really interesting stuff happening with these other shows. And sort of one argument for that, um, I say drawing on the work of Raquel Gates, who's a media scholar, is that kind of there's more freedom in reality TV, especially in these shows, because people kind of write them off. People like aren't taking them too seriously, like people aren't paying attention. And so there's kind of like more freedom to put forth content that challenges the status quo. Mm-hmm. So I had one more question and then I, I guess we can move into the there's a Q&A section. But uh, so, <laughs> Professor, if you were stuck on the proverbial desert island, and you could choose the full run of any one reality TV show. What would the show be and why? That's a good question. That's a slightly different from what is your favorite reality TV show. Um, it, it, but I'm probably going to the same answer. So RuPaul's Drag Race. Kind of, sorry, Danielle, I didn't mean to talk over you. It's also kind of meta because we could film you stuck on the desert island watching your favorite reality TV show. Yeah. And see how that, that you know, see how we develop boring. the coping strategies. That would get canceled after yeah, one episode. I'm a professor yeah. watching reality TV. Yeah, I think any reality TV show featuring me would be incredibly boring. Um, yeah, so I think RuPaul's Drag Race is, I mean, that's my, also my favorite reality TV. There's been, there also have been mm-hmm. a lot of seasons, if you include the spinoffs, even more. So at least it's a lot of content. And... It's just a hilarious show. And also just as a sociologist who studies, you know, gender and sexuality, I'm always kind of noticing new things about it from watching the show. So I'll have to say that. Mm-hmm. So, Stephen, what about you? Your favorite reality TV show That's stuck a on question. a desert island? That is a good question. Um, so I could tell you what I watch. No, I'm not going to do it. I was going to say I could tell you what I watch on YouTube, but let's we can't get into that. Mr. Beast. <laughs> I think that the last one I really enjoyed was probably like the the British version of uh, the Gordon Ramsay shows. Um, you know, you, yeah, Danielle, you, you have him in the book as you have this section on the the kind of mean judge archetype, like Simon Cowell, Donald Trump, Gordon Ramsay. I forget there was a there was a fourth example. Like usually the. The, the kind of hyper-aggressive, almost always white, like, man who just kind of shouts at people. Um, and Gordon Ramsay was definitely that, but there was something there's something very interesting about this kind of master chef yeah. going into all these, like, small pubs in Britain and basically telling them they were absolutely hopeless and worthless <laughs> and kind of multi-Michelin yeah, stars yeah. and this little kid trying to cook an omelette in, in his local you pub. You may have identified with somebody going back to old-timey England and telling them they were useless yeah, and they and, just leave. And, and, and being a massive yeah. bully. Yeah. So yeah. it fits, completely fit my yeah. persona and personality. Yeah. What about, did you well, say it's what It's interesting else? because, oh, sorry. No, no, <laughs> no, no it's interesting. I, I don't know. I didn't, I don't think I ended up putting this in the book, but one thing that's always occurred to me is like, I don't think it's a mistake that those mean judges tend to have British accents. Like, mm. I think we, there's actually research that shows that we accept more meanness as Americans from people who have British accents. Really? Well, I, yeah. that is I, I, I need to rearrange. So I see here my boss, yeah. a lot of my students. Um, <laughs> this is new information that I, I now need to reorder some yeah. of my social relationships. And his co-host. Um, yeah. 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 No, no more Mr. Nice, Professor. 
So, <laughs> well, to stick with the theme, I suppose, uh, if it were me, I would probably want the full run of the Great British Baking Show. Uh, not necessarily because, well, definitely not because it's inspiration for my culinary skills, which are essentially non-existent, but because I just find the vibe very relaxing. Uh, unlike a lot of the American reality TV shows, competition seems to be the, at least the interpersonal conflict that it arises through the competition seems to be put on pun intended, the back burner. Um, and it's just seems like a friendlier kind of show. And I imagine if I were stuck on a desert Island for some indeterminate, I guess the rest of my life is the question. Um, I would probably want more peaceful feelings than, than aggressive and angry feelings. So that's just the difference between us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, great. So I think what we're going to do now is uh, take a, a quick break. And then uh, when we come back, we will have a Q and a from the audience. And we are back with Professor Danielle Lindemann, and we have a, um, an excited and large uh, studio audience here who are, who are just desperate um, to ask the professor uh, questions. And sir, you're first. Uh, greetings, Professor. Uh, my name is Nate. I'm a student here at UConn uh, studying history. And so I had a, a question about if you notice any differences between the reality TV shows between nations, because um, you know, I'm a big Gordon Ramsay enjoyer. I've seen every episode of Hell's Kitchen UK and uh, <laughs> U.S. I have noticed a difference. I'm curious if there's any other shows you kind of notice that in. That's such a good question, Nate. So mainly my research and my book focus on the U.S. and American TV. And so I didn't really take a look at shows outside the United States. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I do think is interesting is that so many of the shows that are in the U.S. are also in other countries or versions of shows, not necessarily coming from the U.S., maybe coming from other countries and, and translatable to the U.S., which I think kind of speaks to these kind of like broadly resonant themes in reality TV that can resonate across different cultures. But I'm sure that there are lots of differences. Um, I'd actually like to hear your thought. What is, what is the difference between Hell's Kitchen uh, UK and Hell's Kitchen US? Um, so the UK version is a lot less dramatic. People are less crazy. And I don't know if that's like, it's like a difference in mm. like, like how actually like, British people are. I don't know that many. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but like, um, do you have any examples? No, <laughs> I only have one. Um, but um, like one one example is that like there's like almost no sound effects in the UK version versus like you'll hear like the you know all these like different like noises and stuff and like the American ones to keep your attention like you know jingling keys in front of a baby um, versus like the the British one it's like pretty subdued you just see the cooking and how bad it is so. Mm. <laughs> You know, we've talked, but we've talked about that before on our pod with regard to sort of cultural differences and the ways that the culture of which from which you emerge can impact your interpretation of what you're seeing. So I wonder, you know, it turns out, Nate, that we've got somebody who actually has British origin uh, <laughs> on the pod. What do you make of that kind of lesser, uh, lesser aggressiveness or outward? So, well, I don't know, because I'm going to start talking like enormously patronizing yeah. cultural stereotypes, yeah. right? Um, it's, it, it's the, the Here, let, me, let me help you get started then. <laughs> <laughs> In Britain, one would never <laughs> <laughs> scream at the top of your voice for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> like, for example, at the introduction to a podcast. Uh -huh. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> I, I made you do that. Um, no, just the, the, just different things play yeah. things play differently in the in the different countries. That is very interesting. I mean, if you were doing like a comparative study, though, that's that's really interesting because you take the same individual, Gordon Ramsay, and you say how 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 does he perform his Ramsayness mm -hmm. when he knows he's on British TV versus mm -hmm. on 
American TV. And he's kind of, he's phenomenally rude on the British show for a British person, but, but it probably wouldn't register in the US. And, and I find this a lot like in, like in my professional life and, and all sorts of places that, that I, will, I will be extremely annoyed about something and will believe I've expressed myself very clearly and the other person has not a clue. They're like, oh, he's, he seems totally agreeable to this. That seems tremendous. <laughs> Let's keep on doing the thing. Yeah. Um, so that's just life. Yeah. Excellent. Great. Great. Thank question. you so much. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Okay. Hi, my name's Madison. I'm also a student here. Um, I know you kind of talked about this like a little bit of, a little bit at the beginning about this, like how the book doesn't really answers a different question, but like how do you know what's like fake and not fake? I know this is kind of a basic question, sorry. But like Did you, you know, hear my questions? I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know certain parts of reality TV is scripted. Uh -huh. Um but how do people like interpret that? Like, I know when I talk about it with my friends, people have this very like interesting view of like, they know it's scripted, but also choose to like very much so believe every event that's going on in it, mm -hmm. like watching The Bachelor or something like that. Like, you know, some of this is like scripted and like they're intentionally doing this to make it seem more dramatic. Like, but people's interpretations are very much so like, this is real, this is actually happening. Like, why is that, I guess? I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I get asked that question a lot, actually. Um, people are really staunch about the fact that reality TV is not real, is not reality. And I think, you know, actually, I, I think people watching in 2023, like most of us at this point, we're pretty savvy. Like, we know that it's not really real. Um, I don't think anyone, anyone I've ever asked this question to has ever said, yeah, I think this is 100% a mirror of reality. First of all, nothing could be, anything we create into a cultural product with human hands is not going to be a mirror of reality. That includes the news, right? They pick which stories to tell and how to tell them. That includes documentaries, right? There's some sort of narrative arc there. Um, and so, as I say in the book, the fact that it's not really real, whatever that means, doesn't sort of disqualify it as an object of study, but I think, you know, at the same time, we're tuning in because for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier, right, that we like want to look at the freak show. But at the same time, the freaks are like us and we're drawn to the freaks, even if in the back of my our minds, we know like, OK, maybe there's some scripting here. Right. These are reconfigured. They're Frankenbitten together and certain people are picked and then they're plied with alcohol and producer intervention. And we know we're savvy. We know all these things are happening. But at the same time, that doesn't inhibit our enjoyment of the shows. Thank you. That answered my question. Yeah, thank okay. you for your question. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, hi, my name is Aaliyah. I'm also a student here. And I was like basically just wondering like when I was younger, I'd watch reality shows where people were like really hectic, screaming, running around, <laughs> going all crazy. And then as times moved on, especially like post pandemic, I've seen shows like The Great British Baking mm -hmm. Show come out and they're a lot more mellow and i was wondering mm -hmm. like why that transition maybe started to happen yeah. that's really interesting usually i get asked the opposite that people say that reality tv is getting zanier and zanier you know i, I think that just speaks to kind of a tendency of, of us as humans to want to always think in terms of trajectories that like we're moving towards something or more away from something right like reality shows are getting more subdued or they're getting more frantic but I mean, I think 
there's just so much noise, right? Like there were like wild and crazy reality shows in the early 2000s. Um, and there were subdued shows then and there's subdued shows now. And I think it depends also on, you know, the network, like some of the scre- streaming service shows are maybe more like prestige reality shows. So they might be a little bit more subdued versus, you know, people screaming at each other and pulling their hair. But I think reality TV is so diverse a genre that it's really hard to say that like in its totality, in the aggregate, it's like moving in any particular direction. I think during the pandemic, the shows tended to be a bit more subdued, but that was just an artifact of the pandemic is because they couldn't do a lot of the things that they normally do. Like it was just people actually wrote a piece about that. It was just people sitting around talking and I ate it up because it brought me back to my real world roots. Mm. Um, But that's sort of fallen by the wayside now that those, um, precautions have been lifted. So I, yeah, I don't actually know if it's true that reality TV is getting more subdued, especially since a lot of people seem to think the opposite is true. But I think in reality, there's just, you know, so much noise and so many different types of reality shows that it's really hard to make, you know, an aggregate statement about like the direction that it's headed. Mm. Right. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder, Professor, if I could just follow up. Um, did you see the reality show The Circle? Do you know? I think it was on Netflix. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I know what you're talking about. Everyone tells me I need to see this. I have not so seen this, it. This no. struck me as I don't know if the timing quite works, but this struck me as as a sort of quintessential pandemic um, reality show. And I do remember watching it with with a, a class that you know when we were all virtual. I kind of assigned this this show, and it was something we we discussed every week. And it was, it was just bonkers because they put all these people in this like single apartment building. So they all had their own apartments and they were supposed to interact with each other, but they could never physically meet, which lent it that great sort of pandemic mm-hmm. era kind of social distancing thing. And they could only communicate through this, um, you know, bespoke social media app called, I think it was called The Circle. And so they, they would have to kind of play the elimination games and form alliances based purely on kind of text messages and emojis. I don't think they could even do video. So there were people that were like, a, you know, a woman pretending to be a man and vice versa. And, you know, all sorts of weird things were, go- were going on. It was, it did strike me as quintessentially sort of pandemic era, but also it was, it, it was, these people came off as looking utterly psychopathic because you could see them typing, you know, into their computer screen, like, um, I like you so much, LOL. And, and their faces would, there would be not a change in expression on their, you know, the, the, the emoji would be like, laughing out loud emoji or crying like I'm so devastated and they had the the most affectless face and it just seemed like total psychopathy you know that the 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 emotions were not matching the expression of emotion was not matching the the kind of facial expression at all it was bizarre (laughs) so so anyway that's that I guess is my my I've been able to recommend to the reality tv expert a new a new reality show yeah definitely watch that one yeah Thank you. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, hold no, up your, no. your question. Um, hi, my name is Abby. I am also a student here. And I was just wondering, given you've watched so much reality TV, are there any like specific components that you think this is how you're going to build that winning reality TV show? Or mm-hmm. as an extension of this, do you have one that you would really like to see made? Oh, good question. Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, so components of a good reality tv show i mean i think there has to be certain like organic elements that seem 
real or that we can at least like buy into the delusion that they're real, even though we know that there's like all this artifice, as I just talked about. So I think sometimes what kind of like stalls a reality show in its tracks is like it just it seems like it really seems like the people are performing. It really seems like the people are just there to do spawn con, that they're just there to get followers. Right. And even if that's even if that's true, probably a lot of the time nowadays, you want to kind of opt into that mutual delusion that they they aren't there for that, that they're there for the right reasons to paraphrase The Bachelor. Right. And so. I think that that sort of like organic gelling of a cast that seems like they're actually like behaving in ways that they would behave in real life is kind of the winning formula. I would say um, shows I'd like to see made. I always say this um, a, a show about, so my mother-in-law like lives at this like old age retirement community and it is fascinating. Know. Like it's more interesting than a high school, like mm-hmm. the clicks and the like. <laughs> people stabbing each other in the back not literally so i think like a retirement community Mm. although they are doing a golden bachelor now so we are seeing some of the seniors being represented but i think a retirement home community and then you get like that senior demographic of viewers as well yeah that would be amazing yeah (laughs) thank you okay thank you did we have any questions that were written do you have any written questions Mm -hmm. you have a written question do you want me to read it out no here's the test do you want me to read it out or jeff <laughs> that actually is an unfair thing. You said Jeff? She said Jeff. That's outrageous. What's going on? Is it because his voice sounds more bass boosted than, than mine? Is that? Yeah. I think it's an artifact of the technology. Well, something has been said here, hasn't it? <laughs> something has been said. Okay. Sorry, we're going to have to scrap this recording. So, um, sorry, what is your name? Emma. Emma. Okay. So, Danielle, this is from Emma. She asks, why do contestants choose to be on reality TV? What goes on in their heads, do you think? Oh, I get asked that a lot. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I want to say I'm a sociologist. So I can't speak that much to what goes on in -hmm. people's heads. There's been some research that suggests that there's like, a connection between desire to be on those shows and a certain level of narcissism. Not that everyone that goes on reality TV is narcissistic, but that seemed the two things seem to be aligned. But I think also like, I mean, again, in 2023, people are going on these shows for their own reasons, right? They're going on to like hawk their skincare line. They're going on to get more followers. They're going on to become an influencer. And so there's this like whole host of other reasons that people go on beyond just like, look at me, look at me. I want to be on TV. I want to be famous. Um, so I think there are a variety of reasons that people go on, but like, yeah, there does seem to be like an underlying under, again, it's not my area of expertise, but an underlying undercurrent of, of narcissism there. Yeah. Danielle has been a real turnaround because in fact, the, uh, the audience member wrote not one, but two questions on the card. Um, so I'm, so I'm going to get to ask one of her questions. Get your moment um, in the sun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the question is, um, how do you think reality TV deals with an impatient audience? I, I guess, are you asking how does, how does reality TV kind of construct itself to keep people's attention or deal with a, mm. a kind of hyperactive uh, environment in the, in the audience? Okay. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it depends on the show, right? But I mean, like, I don't know. There are some shows that have been on for seasons and seasons and really haven't changed their formula. And, like, people are still watching. Um, 
And then like shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, when they do change their formula because they think people are getting sleepy, then people react and say like, but this isn't the show we know, right? Like go back to the old formula. So I don't know how they deal with an impatient. I mean, I guess probably that'd be more of a question for like the people who compile these programs, right? Um, I, I, I don't know how they keep an impatient audience awake, but they somehow managed to do it. Well, I wonder, to follow up on that, Danielle, I, does that suggest, do you think that there's a kind of a, like an outer limit against which these shows can push? And if they move too far, right, or, you know, in the parlance, if they jump the shark, they lose that connection with the audience, which is maybe based in the first place upon the way in which the show articulates or connects with the archetypes of the characters. Do you, I mean, is there something there about these shows can only push so far? I don't know if that's true. Like in terms of like zaniness, you mean? In terms of changing formats or um, introducing different types of characters, departing in ways from the sort of established archetypes that give the characters a sense of familiarity with the audience. Yeah, I think you're right. If you're talking about like an established show, um, Mm -hmm. like something like The Real Housewives that has like a massive like fan base who are loyal to that show or RuPaul's Drag Race who are loyal to that show. And then if you do like tweak the formula too much, people are like, that's not the show that I know, right? Like Mm -hmm. I want to go back to the old version, the original flavor, right? But I think Mm -hmm. like in general reality TV, because this is like what I thought you were going to ask, which is a question I often get asked is like, how far are they going to go in reality TV? Like how far can you, can you push? And like, There's, I don't think there's any boundary. I think they, I, I don't know what they could still do that they that they haven't done yet, other than maybe people like having sex on the programs, like and being filmed. But you know, there are like standards that they mm-hmm. probably wouldn't be able to do that. But I, like, I think they've done, they've done that in in Britain. On you know, for all, for all I've said, it's like a, um, a kind of more moderate culture. I'm sure yeah. that they've they've kind of broadcast stuff. Elizabeth, uh, sex box. Sex box. Is the British show where people have sex. Yeah. Oh, it's very literal. I mean, yeah. Elizabeth volunteers from the audience that there's a British reality TV show called Sex Box, which which does does what it says. Like, I mean, literally on the tin. Maybe the box is yeah. tin, and it's a um, <laughs> that's remarkable. But there was also I didn't I didn't see this, but I saw it advertised. There was a British TV show called The Autopsy, in in which they actually did a, a like an autopsy. They got a medical professional in and an autopsy to body like live on TV. Which I, I don't know if that counts as reality TV, but. Uh, I would say that counts as reality TV. I mean, there's there's a show where like men were competing to be like the father of someone who wanted to get pregnant children, and it was hosted by Kristen Davis from Sex and the City to give it an air of legitimacy. I mean, I really don't think there's like probably no plot on reality TV or premise that would surprise me at this point. So Mm. I don't know. Like, I don't know where the apparently it's not sex, so I don't know where the boundary is for reality TV. Okay, and I think. On, on that bombshell, yeah. uh, we, should, <laughs> we should say thank you very much yes. to Professor Danielle Linderman. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.